Welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. This week we are in South Africa. Well, I'm not in South Africa. Uh, Byron is in South Africa and uh, you can explain more about what's going on. Yeah, just about a week ago. I was uh, there for just over a week, 10 days or so. Um, I can only make it about two years before I have to head back. I start to get the jitters and I was at my two-year limit. We had a very small window where I could head over and catch up with some friends, which is exactly what I did. And you're going to be hearing uh, a conversation with uh, an old friend of mine, uh, Dia van der Lange, who's a professional hunter in the Eastern Cape. Uh, It was pretty much towards the end of my time with him there, and we are sitting on the sofas in his lounge back at his house after being in the mountains for a few days and hunting around the place. late on in the evening, basically just having a chat, telling you guys a little bit about what we've been up to for the the previous days and talking through some of the hunting and issues that uh, they have in South Africa. And I was in Portugal meeting up with some of our podcast uh, listeners there and I went out in Lisbon with uh, Francisco and his uh, friends and family and it was pretty awesome. It's amazing, quite what parts of the world we have managed to reach with this podcast. From uh, Portugal to the Falkland Islands, we had a a message from somebody who's working in the Falklands right now, and they listen to the podcast too. So the only place that I I, I would really love to get somebody is maybe someone in one of the the Antarctic survey um, camps there. That would be be pretty amazing, because let's see if we can do poll to poll. I'm not sure how good their internet is, though. But they can download before they go. Yeah, that's, that's the challenge. That's, that's very Who can true. be the most remote person to listen to the podcast? We've had some wicked invites over the last few months of people inviting us to hunt in the States. We've uh, had an invite from uh, Devin uh, to go and do a ride along in the Washington State for uh, in in his police car. He's a police dog <laughs> handler. About that. That's probably one of the most wicked invites we've ever had, and we are going to take him up on it. And we're we're going to the states soon. We're just it's just planning, that's yeah. all. We are um I think we can officially say we are heading to New Zealand next year. Yeah. I think it's gonna roughly be the start of June. We're going with uh, hard yards hunting. Uh Joseph over there. In fact I'm speaking with him on the phone tomorrow to put some plans together for that trip. But that is gonna be pretty epic. Daryl's been to New Zealand before. I haven't, although I've got a couple of cousins there now. Yeah. And I'm very much looking forward to that. I yeah. think I need to start getting fit though. Yeah, definitely. Well, I spent a month there so I kind of know what, what to expect mm. i've seen the mountains yeah uh they're v- it's very much like norway over there uh extreme is the good way to put it so i think we're going to be probably after tar maybe chamois or chamois if you're from new zealand <laughs> yeah so any uh i don't think we've got a huge listenership in new zealand we've got, we've got a fairly large one in australia mm-hmm. um so if there's any uh new zealanders, new zealanders drops a kiwis um, even some of our Aussie listeners drop us a line because we're going to have probably have to stop somewhere. Yeah. Um, and we'll. I, I quite fancy we've got a, a an old friend who works in the Northern Territory, and I would quite fancy stopping off there for a bit on the way to see if yeah, we could do some hunting. Yeah. Well, we've got family now in in because uh, I lived in Perth, and I've got family in Broome and uh, Darwin. So uh, there's no reason why we can't. I mean, the problem with Australia is so bloody big that 
like if you go, oh, I'm just going to nip up to Darwin. It's still, it's still <laughs> it's a, not up the it's road. It's a nine, it? ten hour flight from where we'll be in New Zealand. So <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's on a different scale to the UK. Yeah. Um, we have. Oh, oh, no, no, I was going to. I was going to tell our our listeners who won the prize in the show. Oh, yeah. uh, okay, so this is not from the show two weeks ago, which was the one with um, Chris Conroy. This is from the two weeks before, which was Shane Mahoney's podcast, which we've had so much awesome feedback on. If you have have happened to skip it by some reason, go back and listen to it, and that was to win a set of Smith Optics shooting glasses they're interchangeable lenses one clear uh one shaded for for use in the sun and you simply had to um tell us who we had on the show who uh, it was a what did I, I can't even remember what the criteria was a female author or the um, a yeah, recent was, author yeah. on the show and uh of course that was louise gray uh, who wrote the ethical carnival we randomly selected a name out of the tons of people who got it. In fact, I don't think anyone got it. It would be very hard to yeah, get it wrong. You just have to <laughs> copy the person above you. That's the only downside to these competitions. Yeah, so everybody got it right and randomly selected Luke Little. So congrats, Luke. I you think win. you're fairly local to us. I think you, yeah, I think you are. So um, we can either post it or we can Come arrange pick to pick it up or give it to someone that you know or we know. Mm-hmm. I'm sure we it's can. A, it's a small world it up here. A, so yeah. Generally, somebody knows somebody that you know in the it, hunting fishing space. It is. Thank you to the thousands of people that downloaded uh, our show. We had, uh, in one day, we had uh, over five and a half thousand people download one of the shows. So um, a big thank you to all yeah. you guys. And that's individual people as well because... Uh, the way our stats work, we can tell who's um, what's individual and what's not. So that's quite incredible for one day. It is. Yeah, no, it's been a pretty epic month. Hopefully we can keep the same trend going on through the rest of the year. Uh, we're going to continue to try and bring you and, and really great podcasts. It's, it's through word of mouth, mainly. Hmm. That's how, how people are getting it. Because apart from Instagram and Facebook, that's the only other way that people really find out about this. Yeah, because we've not, we've not put it anywhere else, really. Um, and we we need to actually start every now and then. Me and Byron forget to like introduce ourselves into the show. Mm. So I'm one of your hosts, Daryl Pace, and I'm your other host, Daryl's brother, Byron. Yeah. So if you want to know about us, just look back in the podcast, and there's a whole episode all about us. But we're not actually leading the podcast; someone else is interviewing us, which is yeah, it's from the better. Beyond the uh, Beyond the Kill podcast, and we did a little swap. So we grabbed the recording that he recorded all the way over in Canada, and then brought it back to you here. So if you're just listening now you know who we are now and you can go back and find out more about us we had uh, a competition two weeks ago as well which was to win uh, a very uh, very cool vintage hornady reloading well reloading and ammo sign we, we have more of these to give away yeah so. we actually have quite a few and one that's actually i think there's two which are different to the ones that uh, yeah yeah they are actually not the same one i'm gonna have to steal one of those for myself because i only have the one that we gave away <laughs> two weeks ago uh that was a picture competition and we can't give you the name of the winner because we're going to do what we did last time we did a picture i competition have a vote. Like this. So look out on social media in the next day or two. We're going to shortlist three, maybe, and then let um, our social let media everyone else decide. Pick. It worked really well last time. Loads and loads of people voted on the the pictures across Instagram and Facebook. That's where we put it up. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to say uh, we had a few messages. Uh, well, in fact, we had one message from someone just uh, talking about audio quality and stuff like that. Uh, apologies on the last few shows not the last two but there's been a few before that at the the conference and stuff like that where the audio has not been the best we try and make 
the audio as best as we can. Uh, we do live in a fairly rural location, so internet is a, a big problem for us when we're trying to get guests on. But we will always strive to improve. And, you know, suggestions and comments like that, they're more than welcome. We, we, we welcome them. Yeah we, yeah, we want you guys we to be want, able to listen yeah, and learn from yeah, the yeah. awesome guests that we have. So yeah. we're going to try our best to... Uh, I mean, our, our audio is always good because we can sit here with headsets on and yeah. speak to you, but sometimes we struggle with the guests. But we're going we're gonna to try and make a plan to uh, to improve that going forward. Yeah. Um, now, after mentioning two competitions that have been, we've got a competition for this show. This is why you have to listen to every single show. Like You mm. can't just tune out for a few weeks because you'll miss out you'll on competitions. Out. <laughs> and then you'll miss out on your name being read out. And we only hold it for a month. And after that, you don't get the prize. No, it goes back fair, into the pool. It goes back into the, the pool. So you need to be a regular listener. So the prize um, for this week is a Hornady beer mug and a set of in-ear Surefire ear defenders. Uh, we will stick uh, a picture of both of those up on Instagram and on Facebook, if not today, tomorrow. And then all you will have to do is tag a friend below to introduce him to the podcast. Baron's saying today or tomorrow, but this podcast is not actually out for another week because we're recording it early. Yeah, but I'm going to schedule it. So the day that it goes out, it'll be out. Okay, okay. Well, it will be out within one or two days of the yeah. podcast release. Um, so get entering. Anything else? Uh, I wanted to mention that there is an auction coming up for Salmon and Trout Conservation UK. We made a film for them almost a year, hard to believe how time flies, almost a year ago now. I guess it was, yeah, yeah, last summer. Yeah, it was last summer we we filmed it, which was the demise of sea trout, uh, but the sea trout population in Loch Marie on the west coast of Scotland. And they are running an auction starting on the 18th of September uh, where basically there's, they've been given a whole load of lots from days fishing to fishing rods. I'm guessing here, but these are normally the kind of things that they, they auction. And you can uh, bid on them, and it's going to raise money for their efforts for conservation of salmon and trout across the UK. So, a pretty good cause. So it's not, not too far away. Um, I was just thinking that uh, a very popular show we did last year. I know we don't want to talk about Christmas right now because it's still very early, but <laughs> we, we need to... Uh, we're not playing any Christmas songs. so uh, We need to think about these things ahead of time. Last year we did a show that was kind of just like products we used ourselves. It was all stuff we'd either bought ourselves or... or just, just things that we'd been using. We'd been using for months. like, yeah, a or 12 months. a couple of years, actually. Some if, of yes, some of them longer. Um, if there's anything that you think uh, I would like you to talk about, we might be able to get our hands on it now mm, if you plan. want it talked about at Christmas time when you maybe want uh, your gift list, list to be uh, made up. So if you have any suggestions of any products and stuff like that, let us know. We might already have it. We might not. We can maybe get our hands on it, and then we can let you know our if it's worthy for if buying. It's worthy for if it's worthy of buying. We won't. We won't tell you any rubbish. Uh, with regard to this podcast, I mentioned in here well, the day that we I sat down and recorded this uh, with Diophon, which was on a Saturday, was a day was the, the day that there was supposed to be the opening of an auction for Rhino Horn, uh, first legal auction for Rhino Horn. Um, since it's the, the movement of it had been banned. And I, I talk about it in here that it had actually been postponed, and at that point we didn't quite know how long it had been postponed, and that was because of some legal rubbish in the courts in South Africa. Now that we're I'm re uh, recording the intro to this, that auction has come and gone. Uh, and what I can tell you about that, of the 
263 horns that were up for sale, uh, very few of them were actually sold, and the turnout uh, for bidding was was pretty poor. And I think that most of the reason for that lies in the fact, and it, it seems quite obvious when, when you say this, <laughs> yeah. is that only um, internal trading was allowed, so those horns could never leave South Africa. So it's just trading between people in South Africa that... And we all know that the market is in Asia. Yeah. So I think it's... I'm very much of the opinion, and if you listen to the likes of uh, Ivan Carter, who talked about it when we interviewed him, we've got to do something differently to to save rhino. And auctioning and farming rhino horn legally and sustainably seems like the obvious choice right now. I I can only see it benefiting the population of rhino. But they've got to open up the international market. Yeah, if they open up the market, the money will come in. They'll have vast amounts of money, because you're not talking pennies here, you're talking... Millions, more than gold and weight. Millions and millions and millions of pounds or dollars worth of rhino horn already stockpiled, let alone what they could harvest. Bear in mind, when you cut the horn off a rhino, it, it doesn't harm the rhino at all. No. So it, it's basically they could fund themselves It'll, protection. Exactly. It'll fund the protection. And um, eventually, you know, if you opened it up, you could see in 20 years' time they might not be an endangered species. Who knows, but uh, that's certainly not the situation we're in right now. So that was just an update from what we were talking about there. Auction came and went, but it didn't really work. I just hope that because it it wasn't really successful and and achieve what it was supposed to achieve, that that doesn't put a nail in the coffin for it. I think that we should learn from those lessons. I think that a big discussion needs to be had with CITES so that they can open up the trade to get these legal horns out and paid for by the Asian market. It's nuts when you think about what is legally allowed to be traded around the world, but yet rhino horn isn't. I, obviously, we know the reasons behind why they shut it down originally. Is to kind of the idea was to slow down the poaching, the, the yeah. poaching and uh, slow down the trade. But the problem is the I think the black market trade is so good at transporting it around the world that it made very little difference. All you got to do is look at drugs around the world. Yeah. They're it's not the same le- difference. Most of those drugs are not legal anywhere, yeah. and yet it's still they still the flow into every single country in the world. Mm. Uh, you can't stop the black market trade. You can hinder it, you can halt it for a period, but you'll never stop it. So no. I think it's quite naive to think that you'll stop the black market trade of rhino. But you would stop it if it you would stop legal. it if it was legal. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So that's the update on that, and I think that is the last thing that we need to say. Well. Um, Enjoy the hour and a half long show. Uh, Don't forget that this podcast is supported and brought to you by the Scottish Association for Country Sports. If you'd like to know any more about them, go and stick in SACS or the Scottish Association for Country Sports into Google. You will find their rather nice website. Yep, check it out. Uh, And we mentioned this uh, in months gone by, but they have running with their membership discounts on various vehicles. So if you're in the market for... Not just vehicles. Oh, including the, the... They've got ferry discounts. I was, oh, lo- I was looking you- in the magazine today. Uh, the very, very nice. That's actually that's a good point. country a sports uh, journal newsletter, which I would say ninety percent of the pictures are ours. So uh, definitely. Uh- actually, I think since since you've got it in your hand here, Darrell, I need to give it a, sh- a shout out uh, to the front cover of this um, their their newsletter because sitting on the on the riverbank is our very good friend who is in New Zealand right now, Eden Anand who was fishing with me. I think that picture was taken about March. Yeah, you better listen to this show now. (laughs) Saw him looking at other podcasts a few months ago. Uh, uh, Obviously, ours isn't good enough. Um, Okay, so just since I've got it in my hand, uh, Fortis Clothing, Stalker's Dream, 
after Pin Q Ferries, Toyota, uh, Woodcock and Snipe, uh, Fishing Supplies, sorry, Ultimate Fishing Supplies. Um, th- there is more. Uh, yeah. that's, you, there's discounts with a lot yeah. of things. So but you, you shouldn't be getting it just for the discounts. Yeah, but, but it's, it's a, a it's nice a bonus, bonus yeah. um, if you're a member. Go check out their website and you will probably, uh, you'll, you'll get the the new newsletter, which has only been out by a few, a few weeks, with some great content. Uh, yeah, well, I was obviously we were away, so I got it last week. But it is a very, very nice newsletter, actually. It's mm. it's kind of one. If you know, if it was a few pages bigger, that would be the magazine that you'd pick off, pick off the shelf. The shelf that yeah. looks that good, looking very smart. Yeah. Well, uh, enjoy the show. And just like that, we're live. Dear fun, welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast, which. Today, I am recording in your house, in South Africa, in the Eastern Cape, having just spent, I don't know, five days with you, six days. It hasn't been a very long trip this time. Like We've been, uh, well, we, we nipped up into the Winterberg Mountains a day after arriving, and it was great, except the weather's been crazy. Yeah, you haven't had the best weather. It was, it was everything like Scotland. was against you. First, it was howling wind. Then it was rain, then snow. It was just all the elements was against us. I saw more snow here than I saw all winter in Scotland six months ago. But that's it's, unusual for you guys. It though, is. Right? It's actually it's very late for this time of the year. It's not. We're not supposed to have snow at this time of the year because it's basically the end of our winter. Hmm. So normally it's supposed to go towards spring now, slowly warming up, but. But our weather has been upside down for the last couple of years, actually, mm. because it's just been getting drier and drier. I was just going to say, when I arrived, uh, you guys hadn't had rain for a long time, and it looked bad. Um, yeah, like the last two years, we basically haven't had rain. Um, but it's been a drought that's been coming on for, I would say, about seven, five years at least, where your average rainfall has been getting less and less every year. Mm. And we've been scraping by, scraping by, but the last two years has just been horrendous. Oh, and what has that meant for the for the game and, and the landscape around here? Well, all most of our browsers are found are fine because they eat bush. Yeah. But the animals eating grass has been suffering. Stuff like warthogs and uh, blessed buck, wildebeest, those things they are were actually going backwards. Mm. and larger numbers had to, had to be taken down because they were going to die in any case. And rather take our, off some of the animals that's going to die mm. and keep some of the younger, stronger animals that will survive the winter or the drought. Because as soon as the animal's condition is down and you've got this um, cold fronts and stuff, that's when they all get pneumonia and die. So... The strong young animals—that's the ones that's gonna survive it. It's it's strange for um, well, it would be strange for people from from Europe and especially the UK to see the kind of setup that you guys have on your farms and on the lands here with all the sort of series of dams to catch water because it is such a. I mean, everybody knows that water brings life, but we don't have to think about it at home because it's just, as you know, because you've hunted many times now in, yes. in Scotland with me and this it's wet pretty much everywhere all of the time, all of the year. But here you guys have to think about it. Yeah, we've 
got a plan so that we've got water all year round. Where you guys, it's just something that you've got. You can't take it for granted. No. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, I do get a bit pissed off when people, especially from Europe, comes and swear and curse because it's raining and they do not understand how dependent we are on the water. Mm. And because they've they come from a background where they've just got excess water and we don't. Yeah, it's been a bit like my trip here. It's been snowing and raining for basically half of it, but I understand that you, this place was on its knees we like in the days before arriving, before well, I arrived. It hasn't broken the drought no. completely because but it hasn't filled up all the dams and there's towns that has actually got water restrictions that they've only got water for four hours in the morning and four hours in the evening hmm. so you guys drill a lot of boreholes here as well yes, we that's do. something another thing that we don't do at home how, just explain how that works for people well it's basically a hole that gets drilled into the ground and the pump put into it nowadays we use electrical pumps which can be run either direct from your electricity electricity providers or you can put up solar panels. Oh, well, we saw one today, actually, yes. didn't we? Yeah. And then the old, and some people still use them, is wind pumps. The classic yes. wind vane. Wind mills. Yeah. Yeah. Which the wind just moves the cylinder up and down and it brings the water up. Hmm. And without that, you wouldn't have... You, I suppose with, without that sort of intervention, you wouldn't be able to um, sustain the volumes of game that you have here. No. Definitely not, mm. because everything got got a drink. The only animal basically that doesn't drink water is a steenbok. Does it not? No. Does it get just moisture from just the plants? Just moisture from the plants and the bits just of grass and. For dew. those people who have no idea what that looks like, just to try and describe it. Steenbok, if you, I would say, a UK animal about the size of a female muntjac, maybe. Yeah, I guess so. Some yeah. something around there. Actually, quite similar. Little straight horns, big big ears. Um, another thing about the steenbok is they pay for life, hmm. and um, that's one of the reasons why I actually don't like hunting them. Is everybody just wants to shoot a male, hmm. and um, then you end up with this female just walking all by itself, just lost, just lost. So, yeah, I suppose. I sp- I wonder how many people know that before they make their decision. If they're adding it to their sort of list of things that they like to hunt when they come over here, do you tell do you tell clients? I that? do tell tell them that, and sometimes it does change their minds. And some people actually say, "Well, then I'll take both of them mm-hmm. and keep them as a set or yeah. pair and mount them together." Hmm. South Africa, of all the African countries has an incredible story in terms of the rise of game here. You don't have to look too far back in, in your history where there, there was nothing like the volume of game that you no, have today. We've got thousand percent more game at this stage than in 1960, where everybody thought back in the days we had large numbers of game, and it's not true. We've got, I cannot, off the tip of my Ahead now, just remember the figures, but it is more than a thousand percent of game that we've got at this stage than mm-hmm. we had 50 years ago. But why is that? Because there was value added to the game. 
it had a it's got a monetary value because people pay to shoot the animals and if you if there's no money involved you might as well just shoot all the game and run cattle mm-hmm. or sheep or grow some trees else, yeah, or whatever. there's lots of people yes people do need to eat mm. and if there's no income coming in from let's say a kudu you've got to get rid of that thing to run cattle because it's competition yes mm. i and the, um, another problem was, I think it was a lack of education in the older days, where the old farmers, because a lot of the farmers, as they got to Africa, was all settlers from all over the world, and they didn't really know what eats what, and everything was just seen as competition mm-hmm. for grazing. And a kudu does not interfere with the grazing of cattle because a kudu eat leaves and a cow eats grass so there was no reason just to shoot them but they killed a lot but they killed they did kill a lot hmm. and bushbuck they shot a lot of bushbuck they shot a lot of bushbuck they shot well basically everything it was a form of, of food as well but um, with commercial hunting it's just added value to the animal and now you don't need to have the cattle there because you're still putting protein into the system. There's now it's well, it's just venison now, but it's still meat or mm. stuff people can eat. I think that's uh, you know one of these misperceptions of Africa. Quite often when people think about big game, but just Africa in general, because there is this sort of sort of trophy hunting connection there. We'll talk a little bit about that later, but. Uh, a lot of the general public think that the meat doesn't get used, but you, the consumption of game here is just phenomenal compared to back home. Well, I think we've got a lot more game mm-hmm. than you guys have. And um, there is, even the carcass sizes is just so much bigger. A dressed out kudu it's going to be 140 kilos worth of meat. Mm. So th- it, that is part of the reason why you can actually farm these things and it it serves at, at multiple purposes because, number one, you've got the meat. Well, first of all, you get your hunting fee or trophy fee or whatever you want to call that. I don't want to specifically say trophy fee because it's not all trophy animals. Sometimes we need to take off older animals or take down a couple of females because of popula- population density and so not all hunters not all hunts here is just trophy hunting mm-hmm. it's hunting um, then okay so they then we've got the, the meat after that then the leather every bit of these animals are getting used hmm. right from uh Right from the start all the way to the to the end. I mean, give give people some examples because you're a professional hunter, but you also have an interest in meat through a butcher shop and a lot of game going through there. Give us some ideas of, of volumes of meat because at the end of the day, all of the this meat is being consumed by people. Dude, that is a lot of meat we're talking. Um, I actually can't give you hundred percent figures on. No, that but just uh, just a kind of ballpark, just because. It'll be a. I mean, just talk about in the local context here, well, on your doorstep, where we are in Fort Beaufort. 
of the the kind of volumes of meat that are you know going through just one shop. Well, and but you're supplying you know bulldog yeah, stuff all over the place, but venison and meat <clears throat> and stuff to other places. Very good friend of mine does the same. Actually, two of my very good friends, I would say, in the vicinity of twenty tons of meat of meat a week, in a small town in the middle of nowhere. And is is most of that game? All of that is game. All of that yeah. is game. So that's not including your lamb and beef. And no, stuff. no, no. That's excluding. So if we're not hunting, we had to replace it. Replace it with beef or lamb or pork or. Something else. It's it is incredible because that those kind of proportions that does not happen at home. Y- yes, people eat um, game, but the vast majority of people who eat game are people who are involved in the sort of hunting, fishing arena. Mm. But here, a lot of people eat game who will never hunt or maybe no. do it on very odd occasions. It is well one of the reasons why people actually eat a lot of venison. It's healthier for you. It's low in cholesterol, it is free range, so there's no antibiotics and hormones and stuff in these in that meat. Mm. And um, a lot of people actually enjoy it because we've got large amounts of this game that we shoot in this area get sent to bigger cities mm-hmm. where people don't hunt, but they still do enjoy venison. I think in the cities it's actually become like a bit of a delicatessen that they it's not something that they can get all the time so they they want to they want want to find the sourcing it give me an idea um of how hunts operate here in south africa generally speaking for those people back home who you know they've heard about hunting in africa they might even be thinking to themselves you know i'd love to go but uh, I don't quite understand how it works, uh, what kind of places I'm going to hunt, what's available. Uh, just just talk me through that so that people can kind of paint a picture of what they might expect if they come here. Because, I mean, you have a lot of people passing um, passing by you, passing through your doors as a PH, as an outfitter every year. So what do, can people expect? And maybe even go on to, to talk about, you know, what do people need to look out for? Because... As with any walk of life in any country where there's hunting, there are bad operations. Well, I don't think people. that's only in the hunting industry. No, that's across in, all walks of life, yeah. Every single industry, there is good and bad. Yeah. I'm not going to start discussing the the bad now. Mm-hmm. Um, let's start off with the good stuff. Yeah. Um, well, most, most outfitters, and definitely myself, we provide the whole trip for you. We, as soon as you get to the closest airport, which if we're hunting in the Eastern Cape, we normally pick up people in Port Elizabeth, mm-hmm. transport them to one of the lodges that we use, and then settle in, check out rifles and start hunting. Um as I said, that's always all inclusive because I don't like these ideas of after you've been and okay now it's an extra this for for something. It's it just makes it the whole thing easier. In terms of game, there is on our doorstep. Yeah, we've got thirty-eight different species of game that you can shoot, mm-hmm. from dangerous game to small little antelope, um, 
a big variety. So you don't, and as I said earlier, is we don't only do trophy hunting. Mm -hmm. I try and promote hunting, which some people aren't trophy hunters. And it's more about the experience. It's just about the experience. Smelling Africa. Smelling Africa. (laughs) Because once you come here, you will always want to come back. That's that is, that is the warning that should come with every safari is that if you come once that's it for the rest of your life you, you will be forever trying to work out how you can come back <laughs> yeah like I try well we try and to always always do a fair chase mm-hmm. we try and never using vehicles and sitting at water holes it's walk and stalk and we okay we do drive with our vehicles but we will get to a vantage point drive because it's huge areas and you're only here for a couple of days so we will get to a spot sit and then start looking and then make a plan how to get into these animals um there's not that much difference between that and really what we do at home because as you know like when we've been out to you know stalking rodeo for example yes. mine we drive to a farm. You normally drive to a place that you can have a bit of advantage, and then yes. you make a plan. You walk in. It's the same with, with red deer, although you can't drive as much there. No, but, no. The, but even still, I don't think we necessarily did it when when you and I were hunting. But you might very well take an argo out on the hill because you need to extract it For sure. to a vantage point. So it's very kind of similar, although it m- might look a bit different. The only difference is between hunting over here and let's say hunting a red stag is. You can't just start missioning hmm. and right there's the red stag we go we want to get in we go and get closer and then we'll do the final stalk and get into these animals in africa it doesn't work like that we've got such a great amount of game that you can't just start walking you've constantly got to look isn't there a couple of warthogs eating hmm. isn't there two darkers walking around there because if you spook them the rest of this stuff it's is finished. just going to start yeah. running and so the first time I went hunting with you it killed me because we're not we're used to walking that fast we just go on a slow cruise and hmm. be aware of it's like, much it's, it's a slower pace and steadier slower, you're, not, you're yeah. never sort of marching to no. a place yeah. you always you've got to be on the lookout all the time the other thing that that'll be strange for people who are coming from uh, from Europe and certainly the UK is that if you're hunting in an area at home, you're pre- for the most part you know that you're going to see one, maybe two, possibly three species. If you if I'm on my, the sort of farmland at home, I'm going to see roe deer as a sort of game species. Yeah, there's going to be the old hare and stuff, but in terms of stuff that I'm targeting, it's going to be roe. I'm not going to see any red deer there until I'm up into the sort of top yeah. of Glen Esk and that, and then I'm going to see red deer and the occasional row, and that's it. But here, it's every corner there could be something different. And something different, that's mm. the main thing. It, it's not difficult to see 20 species of animals mm. or game in a day. We, we should qualify that, though, because that one of the... The things that has, uh, especially in South Africa, maybe come under criticism for in recent years is smaller camp hunting. I don't want to call it canned hunting because it's not quite that, but it's the idea of hunting over bigger areas and not sort of, you know, 
fish in a barrel type thing, where you can you could go and you say, right, well, we can shoot twenty species in one place, one location, over you know two weeks, which isn't normal. Wouldn't nor you would normally have to, you know, stretch out and. I think we've always had large varieties of game mm-hmm. in all the areas. Um, there is. In, in the Eastern Eastern Cape specifically, we've always had the largest variety of game. If you go to other areas in the country, yes, naturally, many, many years ago, we only had Gemsbuck and you only had, if let's say you're hunting in the Kalori, you might have only had Gemsbuck and the Odd Springbuck. And, but nowadays, we do have that problem and that's, part of the industry that I'm not a fan of is having this smaller camps and having 30 different species of animals that you can shoot and I'm still a firm believer of a fair chase and try and get shoot what is naturally in that area for me I I love that and that's one of the reasons I love going to the mountains with you because then uh, just as one example there's not a huge number of species in that particular area no. that we go to, but it's what should be there. It's it's natural. That is what has always been there. Hmm. Apart from the warthogs, which kind of came in. Well, they moved in. But naturally, they moved in. Yeah. My dad grew up in those mountains. And um, when as kids, there was only mountain reedbuck up there. Yeah. And slowly, over the years, all the other gamers also started moving in there. And none of that was introduced. It was just natural migration of animals. Hmm. Like when the population increases in one area, they start moving out because of food, and that's how you all. That's how you've got your different gene pools and stuff. Like you don't want everything in this small little area because it's what not happens? Good for them. No. Hmm. And then you've also got the thing with. In the smaller, in these small enclosures, you've got a thing in plants called tannin, and it actually poisons these animals. It's a natural detergent of plants. Hmm. If you start, if they, all trees does that. As soon as they start eating, it sets a defense mechanism. Yes, and then that is why he's supposed to be able to see when game is. Um, free ranging that they take a couple of bites on this tree and they carry on walking and they take another couple of bites they won't just stand and eat a tree hmm. and if these inclo- if these areas are too small you can actually start picking up the tannin levels in the blood I did not know that every day is a school day <laughs> so how how do you find a good outfit this might be an almost impossible question but I mean uh, okay if you ask me like, it's it's easy because I know people and I like I've known you for a long time and there's a couple of other people that I've known for a long time so I know that you are good guys and operate just like with a certain ethics like we've just been discussing but if you're just a hunter from a country and think I'd love to come and hunt Africa how do you find a good outfitter you're putting me in a difficult situation. No, I'm not necessarily saying to like suggest yourself, but should you? I mean, I suppose what what I would probably say to people is try and find someone who's been before and ha- have a conversation about places that they've been. And I think that is with. that is probably the best idea. Is talk to people that's been there. Hmm. 
especially if you, if the outfitter or somebody's got an a uh, an agent in that country, mm-hmm. and he's been there by himself, because you can associate with somebody in your country, and you'll sit and talk, and he will tell you, listen, th- that's exactly what's going on there. Yeah, that is probably he's experienced it because Facebook and the internet and all that stuff is. It's really easy to take really nice pictures, <laughs> but um, yeah. you can take a picture anywhere and say this is what's happening at my place, but you don't know the whole story because it's just a couple of amazing pictures. Mm. It's a good point that actually, because I've seen an increasing amount of that. Uh, it, it's like the, the Instagram life. Yes. You see somebody's Instagram feed and you think, man, that person leads the life, but at the end of the day it's just a series of pictures and that is what people want you to see and I suppose that the same is true of you know what you're saying so that's speak to people find people yeah. find out people who have been if you yeah. can that yeah and do a bit of research hmm. um, just google it sometimes you actually hear of the bad things as well yeah unfortunately the this whole social media thing <coughs> has made the world smaller Mm-hmm. So it is easy to get information. Mm-hmm. You just need to do a bit of research. Talk to me about uh, Dangerous Game a bit in terms of the hunting of it because it's, you know, there's hunting in Africa and then there's Dangerous Game, which is the thing that a lot of people talk, uh, think of when it comes to hunting in Africa. It's yeah. a unique part of it. It is the, a, a unique part of it, and I'm glad you say a part of it, because everybody th- hears Africa and then they think Big Five. Hmm. And there is lots and lots of game, and lots more of Africa than the Big Five. Make no mistake, I do like the whole Big Five, and I enjoy hunting. I do not like hunting rhinos, and I don't hunt rhinos. Um, but don't only stare yourself blind to the fact that the buffalo, lion, what about a springbok? What about a diker? There's a lot of other things that's not only, that people don't even know because it's not in the big five. Mm. But dangerous game hunting, if it's done properly, it is the ultimate hunting. It is not always the most difficult hunting. That's again where these other species, like we try to shoot a grey rebuck. That is, according to me, one of the most difficult hunts you can do. It's my second time now, trying. Yes. We, we, to be fair, both times we haven't had a lot of time to try and do it because I'm always doing a bit of a social thing when I come and see you. But yeah, uh, the reason why I wanted to do it again after trying last year, two years ago, was it was just an awesome hunt, even though I didn't even pull the trigger. It is, yes. And it's always, it's very scenic areas where it is, mm. because they live high up in the mountains. It's, it is just different. But the dangerous game hunting, I enjoy it. Mm. I'm sure anybody that's, that likes the bit of a f- the fear factor in their lives will enjoy that. Because, make no mistake, it is dangerous. Of course it is. Yeah. Like today, we stood 30 meters away from <laughs> Buffalo, and I, as I said to you then, we were just looking at them, and I said to him, as I said to you, any minute one of these guys could get grumpy and charge us mm. and kill us. Luckily, it didn't happen because we're still sitting here, but 
that would have ruined our podcast, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes, but if you look into those animals' eyes, you actually realise it is not scared of you. No, 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 they're it's, not. They're not running away from you. No. If you if you in their space, they're going to take you out of their space. Hmm. I mean, just uh, buffalo as an example. I mean, Africa is a big place. You can hunt buffalo in a lot of locations. So yes. Give give our listeners a kind of a spectrum of the kind of places that you can hunt and what kind of format does a hunt take for buffalo? When you read the old books, they always tended to be. If you're hunting buffalo and, say, elephant and a few other species, they were always monster safaris of, like, 21, 30 days, if you read the stuff from 80, 90 years ago. Those people of 80, 90 years ago were very privileged because they lived a life where they could... Take three months out. (laughs) They could take three months away. Um, They were not living in our rat race we are living in today. Very little people has actually got the ability of staying away from home, work, businesses, whatever, for three weeks. Mm. Um, with the numbers of game we've got, and I'm not talking about enclosed areas, a five-day safari, five to seven days, you are pretty much guaranteed that you're going to get your buffalo. Mm-hmm. There is a... But the, um in terms of the the sort of the type of hunting, you can you can hunt buffalo all the way from where we're sitting right now in the east cape, eastern cape, all the across way across massive massive areas, all the way up into uh, Zambia, Zimbabwe, uh, not not Botswana anymore, I no. guess, but uh, Mozambique, you can Mozambique. Can. But it, it is different hunting up there. It's though. totally different. It's every area is unique. Mm. Like in Mozambique, you'll land buffalo in the swamps. Mm. You, you were telling me about that today. Um, that is difficult. I don't particularly enjoy it. I don't like getting wet and <laughs> fighting with young crocodiles and stuff to shoot a buffalo. But you were saying it, it's basically you're walking through the swamps the swamps whole time. The whole day. That's all you do. Look for the birds and see where the. This was fascinating what you were telling me about the birds. Looking looking for the the, the cattle ingrids, oxpeckers, and, and oxpeckers yeah. and coming down and you see where they go down and circle and then you know there must be buffalo there there's no other reason why they should be there because hmm. all most of those birds they don't only eat the the ticks and the stuff on the animals but as the animals are moving through the grass or swamps grasshoppers and all that uh, stuff all the insect up. that gets disturbed yes so there's a lot of movement so that's why they will go follow like a herd of buffalo hmm. because there's a lot of insects there. And then you can hunt them all the way into our area, which is much drier. But sometimes a buffalo can hunt can almost turn into something that feels like a bushbuck hunt when you're hunting them in valleys and mountains. and Like they've moved through Africa, I'm sure. It's just how they've adapted to their areas. Hmm. And... Um, Every area is specific, and something about a buffalo, it's almost like they've got a personality, and you can almost read them when they're standing there. You can see which one is a grumpy one, and that one is maybe a bit younger, but you can see he's going to be a grumpy boy. I suppose it's the same as people, we you can just <laughs> see it. You can see it in yeah. their eyes. Um, tell me about selecting a species like that. I mean, we're used to looking at um, 
antlered animals at home. But you're looking at a buffalo. Just talk to me a little bit about sort of sizes, and we're not used to thinking about the idea of a hard boss, for example. Uh, so some, a lot of people will have never come across this before as a consideration for selecting the right animal. Well, um, as a buffalo grows, they're normally the horns is still is like above their heads mm-hmm. and then as they get older they start dropping to the side slowly mm-hmm. and the bosses open up and then when like eight nine years when they actually brought mature animals and they start fighting and marking territories the bosses get hard just but from impact and use impact mm-hmm. and use it's also natural that they a bit like our skulls get harder. As well. Yes, yeah. probably. And um, they then the, when they're younger, there's a year between the bosses, and then they close up. And then after that has closed up, you will you might still see a bit of air in the middle. And then the older they get, and they start fighting, and the, because the the bosses can't get hard if the horns is still above the head, um, because nothing is. Contacting, yeah, because that's the highest point. Yes, yeah. I saw that today actually when we were uh, when we were filming those buffalo. The the younger ones there, you can see that that there was no drop. No, they're just sitting, sitting, and well, and they way higher on the head. Yeah, difficult to explain that without a picture with you. (laughs) But if you know what a buffalo looks like, you can get the idea. idea. Um, Earlier, we were talking about the value of game and that being you know the primary reason that it is here and has is so abundant especially in south africa buffalo is a, is a good example where there has to be this value you know it's not a, it's not a cheap animal if you no, want to come and hunt it but if it doesn't have that value then it just won't be there anymore because it'll it be replaced by cattle or we were talking about this today and just trying for people trying to get their head around the idea you know i'd love to come maybe i'd love to come and hunt buffalo but oof. Oh, that's a bit, you know, I'm going to have to save for that. Understanding why it costs that, I think, is quite an interesting idea for people. Well, if you were farming cattle, at a year and a half you can sell those cattle. And it's, uh, because then it's just for meat. If you're in, in the hunting industry, you want to shoot a mature animal. If you... Any everybody that wants to mount, I'm not saying monster size horns, but you want to shoot a mature animal. Mm-hmm. That's going to take ten years. So that is ten years worth of one and a half years cattle that you could have sold, yeah. and those things has got to graze for ten years. That's part of the reason, and then the what the rest of your costing goes into permits and accommodation and all those things but the main thing is the price of what we need to pay for these animals because it's either that or none of it yeah and they'll be replaced can, by something else oh, the, the, you can the, go the, shoot a bull uh, you can go and shoot some cattle if you want to yeah but nobody wants to do that yeah ultimately it, that's what it comes down to in this kind of the, the world that we live in, in in a commercial world where there is an increasing number of people is that if it can't pay its way, it just it's gotta go. It won't be there anymore, yes. and it's it's a hard thing for people to try and uh, conceptualize in their head. Um, 
especially from the sort of the non-hunting side, because a lot of that a lot of that sort of thought process would like to believe that if we just did nothing, then there would be more of them. There would be more of everything. No, which... there would just be lots of starving people, animals, because everything is just gonna. If these things just keep on breeding, where are they gonna find food? And that's basically the bottom line. And then something like this drought happens now, and what happens to all those animals? You're just going to see dead animals lying all over the place. Mm. Unfortunately, we um, I think it was on the uh, well, the first day or something that we we were. Oh yeah, it was. It was actually the first day that we were, we were hunting, um, trying to hunt uh, Val Reebok. and we went to the the, f- the farm that we were on. There was for merino wool, and we were having a look around, and we saw the. the <laughs> just in a shelf in their wool sorting shed there was all the i don't know how many it was maybe a dozen caracal skulls yeah. sat up there they weren't mounted they weren't sort of it was just uh, kept. they were just just kept um not from recreational hunting just hunting caracal for sheep which you you brought it up in the car uh when we were in the in the pickup while we were driving uh, this idea of people wearing merino but not realizing necessarily the things that have to go on in the management of the land and necessarily the idea of, you know, these caracal have been hunted so that you can wear merino. Uh, that happens a lot in, in in the hunting industry where people has got an opinion but they don't really know what they're talking about. Um, they wouldn't like us to to shoot a caracal, but if we don't kill that caracal, it's just going to kill all those lambs. Mm. And what where are you going to find that wool? Unfortunately, stuff like that happens, and then you've got these people telling you oh, you are so cruel and you do all these bad things to the animals. And I'm a vegetarian; I don't kill animals. I said, "Well, it's not hundred percent true because a lot of animals actually gets killed to stay out of potato fields, pineapple." Fields. Citrus is Citrus in our areas unfortunately kudus and bushbuck and stuff like that is absolutely mad on oranges. The trees and not only the fruit but the trees itself as well. so yes, sometimes if you they still get in. We try and put up the best fences possible, but they still do get in. And Sometimes you need to shoot them just because they keep on coming in and destroying crops. There is, and there's no difference really between that and us shooting pigeons on a field at home of wheat or no. rape. It's the same no thing. It is uh, a farmer's crop that is being eaten by something wild, and we deter it. They put bangers. You put fences up. You can't put fences up for pigeons, but you can put the fences up for for kudu. But it, you can't always do it, and also it's not always successful. No, at a point, you try your best, and at a stage you realize, okay, this is not happening. We need These to are specific animals coming in all the time. They're breaking the fences that you're putting up, and you've got to shoot these things. Um, so don't tell me that nothing has got nothing got hurt because of you eating your oranges. Because there's a lot of grazing that natural grazing for a kudu or buffalo or whatever that has been destroyed to plant your orange trees. I've got nothing against orange trees. I love oranges. But 
I th- the problem comes in with uneducated people um, that wants to voice their opinions, but they don't really know 100% what they're talking about. The full story, yeah. Oh. So it's sort of uh, there isn't this realization of the full circle, everything that's involved. As I said earlier, you you've uh, as I was telling people earlier, you've you've come over to Scotland. You've been over and hunted twice there. What was your what was your impression? The first thing, the first time I took you up to Sky, and wet. that was your first <laughs> wet. <laughs> that was your first experience of of hunting or stalking, as we call it, in Scotland. How did that compare to home? What were you, what were you thinking? And it, I mean, it is a very different <coughs> experience. Although I, I'd given you an inkling of it before by telling you what it was like, and you'd seen pictures and stuff. But actually doing it for your first time in that place, up in Sky with with Scott McKenzie, were, that was amazing. That was, I think, that was as free hunting and free roaming hunting you're gonna get in your country, and that was amazing because there was nothing there. It was maybe a couple of houses, miles away. And the most amazing bit was hunting right on the sea. Mm. With the sea as in the background. And hunting in those mountains. And it's just green. Although you guys think green is not... It's and that, that wasn't even green because it was winter, but it was green for you that guys. Is, for us, it's green. Um, the funniest thing was, it was the year before that, that we were sitting in a, in a spot in the Winterberg Mountains waiting for a specific bull to come walking out and we waited and waited and this topic of come to Scotland and come and see what it's going on there and a year later I was there and hunting and then I had to sit and wait and wait and wait for a red stag to come off the skyline so that I've got a backdrop to shoot it well we had to wait for him to get up first because you're not lying down to begin with he was lying down now on the skyline so we couldn't do anything and was just lying again it was. But you got your stag. I got my stag. It was an amazing experience. And he's here now. Yes. Yeah. So that was the first year you came. Yes. And then I thought that after that we 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 did we hunted roe deer and went and you went on your first goose flight. You were very very cold. In fact, was it not that trip that you also shot your first grouse? Yes. It was the first trip. Only two years before I managed to shoot my, my first, first grouse. Salmon. Salmon. Sea trout. Sea trout. That was all on Sky. You almost you almost could have done a McNab up there. In fact, you did you did a trip McNab. Yes, I did. They were like about ten days apart, but you but did a trip did McNab. Did a bit of everything. Yes. And there was me thinking that uh, first seasons. Yes, yeah. That you would have had enough, and that would be it. And then about a year and a half later, um, the phone rings. Are you free? I'm coming over again. <laughs> and for longer. Yeah, it was for much longer. Uh, and uh, we went up to Sky once again, and we were um, hunting with Alex and the, a winner of a the competition, the Sax competition yes. there. You weren't hunting yourself, but we were. my brother was there too, and we were doing a bit of filming and photography. What did you make of that? That was on, sort of on the same end of the, well, towards the same end of where you'd been hunting before, but it was in the Coolins, in yes, the mountains. There's was major mountains in Sky. It's very, very difficult to explain it, but it, it feels old it feels ancient when you hunt up there in that gray granite mm. and it's almost mythical isn't it? it is you can almost picture funny things that you've read all over you yeah. during your life about witches and stuff <laughs> you can actually picture it from yeah there. it is really amazing and again there is the sea in the background mm-hmm. which makes it 
just mystical. Yeah. yeah. And that was, uh, I mean, the two years before you'd actually seen the stags roaring, but we, we saw it, we really did see it well. They were rutting incredibly well when we were there last time. Do you have anything like that here? Apart from the fallow deer, which don't count because you stole them from us. (laughs) You can come and have them back. You can take the Take all the fallow back. (laughs) Um, Impala does a bit of a rutting call. What is it? Is it a bark or? No, like a It's a roar. You were going to try and do I it there, weren't you? Try that, no, <laughs> but because I mean, I'm not going to be successful at doing that. But, but not to the extent that our st- we no, have our stags no, not running. not as bad. But it, they they do get vocal. Mm-hmm. That I think that's about the only one. Mm. But now that trip, which was last year, you did something that not a lot of people actually managed to do in one year maybe even a decade, and you did it in a number of weeks, which is shoot all six deer species in the UK. Yes, that was... I know, was, you, you, you'd kind of loosely... thank you to good friends, and yes, it was an amazing, amazing experience. You, you'd loosely planned to do it, but it wasn't a sort of, I have to do this, no, it, it was, just, it happened. It kind of just happened. Talk me, so the first thing was, after we went to Sky, I mean, you'd already shot the Red Stag before, but... We went from Sky back down to Loch Ness and we saw Steve Gray, yes, uh, Glenn to Morrison Estate, and you took a really a great stag there. Very nice stag up there. No, you're actually missing. I shot two Roebuck with you. Was that before we went to Loch Ness? Yes, yeah. it was like a couple of minutes <laughs> after my plane landed. We're just quickly going to look at this place. and <laughs> I'd almost forgotten about this now. And we get to this field and the gun is still sealed in the box from your Norwegian yes, trip or something. Yes, I was going to say, I should just and qualify why it was still padlocked <laughs> was because Deerfin literally arrived like the day after i just spent one month away from home, three weeks in Norway, one week in Sweden. Um, and the week in Sweden was the podcast that we did maybe 12 months ago now where you heard us speaking around a t- creaky table and there was about 15 people in the room and everyone was telling those stories. I'm sure a lot of you will remember that. So one day after I got back from that, Deerfin arrives my guns were still in their case, padlocked up, and I'd picked him up uh, from the airport. Everything, all of my bags were still not even unpacked. It was, all, it was the same car that I'd been picked up in. Picked him up, went, saw my parents, and then we were driving back to my house, which passes some of the the ground that I hunt on. And I said to him, so we'll just, it was sort of a, we're both knackered, but we're driving past the farm. Let's just see if there's just- something out. <laughs> It is. So, within three hours of being in Scotland, I shot two road deer. And then the, the actual planned trip start the next, yeah. started the next day. I'm glad you reminded me of that because I'd almost forgotten. So, uh, yes, you roebucks were done. Uh, stag was done in Loch Ness. And then what happened after that? And we went down to the borders, didn't we? You did a bit of goose shooting? Before that, before the... the st- the stag I actually shot foxes oh that was yes, my first two foxes you did so yes. that was after the stag maybe I should got, tell the story because maybe you should because I'm forgetting well, um, started off with two roebuck then after hunting that stag with you guys in the Coolins, we spent a night two nights with Scott McKenzie mm. and Craig and Craig yeah and um, who's now the underkeeper at that state by the way Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, he is. He's uh, he's he's managed to get in there. He's now the Sneaking understudy of there. Mr. McKenzie. Yeah. Well, 
And then the two of them, two fine gentlemen, took me out foxing. We shot the foxes. Great experience. The closest thing you have to that is jackal. Jackal, right. yeah. But um, it's a little bit more difficult, I think. Yeah. Shooting foxes in, in sky is still proper wild foxes. Mm. Um, it was as wild as you're going to get. But I think our jackal, from be- years of being shot, they just got so clever that you can't get them in like that. But there is guys that's very successful, and um, they do get them. But back to Scotland, after that, I actually shot my stag at Loch Ness. Yeah, Glen Morrison. Glen Morrison. Yeah. Also amazing scenery with Loch Ness in the background, which amazing. was amazing. Yeah. And then we were back down to Angus Glen. Yeah, and you caught some salmon. I caught salmon and then shot a couple of pheasants. We went on a goose flight. That was down the borders with David. David Virtue. Came back to you, did more fishing. And then, and we, then we parted company yes. and you headed down... Back down to the borders, and then you bagged your next deer yeah, species. The second bit of the trip started then when we went down to. Is what they do, was it? Yes. One went down to Bedfordshire, mm-hmm. met up with some really good lads there. I shot my first Chinese water deer, and I also shot a Munchak. Munchak. Mm. Sneaky little animal, though. <laughs> Not much bigger than a hare. And then back up to the borders. Mm. Near uh, Peebles somewhere. Near, yeah, in that area. And I managed to shoot a seeker deer on that side. And that was it. One to six, done in the space of four weeks. Yes. And, but no, no joke, a lot of people would love to do that. And it was just... It just Everything just fell into place for you because, like I said, it wasn't something you were like. I have. That's why I'm there. I have to do it. You were just lucky. You it were was with just, the right people, it was all right luck, time. And that is not what how I was planning. That I've got to shoot all six species. Mm. It is about the experiences and different areas and meeting people, yeah. and that is how why I enjoy hunting is the experience, not just pulling a trigger. No. If you just want to pull a trigger, go to a shooting range. Agreed. It kind of uh, makes me think back now um, to the first time we met, which was all, ten years ago almost. And I was um, I was here in South Africa for a couple of months, and I was looking for places to go to write some articles for for Sporting Rifle, which uh-huh. I've written for for a long time. And I ended up at the same place that you were phing for somebody else on this case. Suppose it was fate. Just yeah, fate we were supposed or, or to be. bad luck. <laughs> In my case, it was bad, bad luck. <laughs> and that was it. We, no, the rest we, is history. We we hunted, but actually, I'm I'm trying to think now. Did we hunt? Uh, when I say hunt together, had I joined you with the client before or after the uh, when your fan belt broke? And I said, "It's okay. I'll come drive through the middle of the night with you back to town so we can get a fan belt for your Hilux." I think it was after that. It wouldn't have happened if it was a Land Rover, by the way. Yeah, it would have ran out of oil. <laughs> no, I think I shot. I think I hunted with you afterwards. Afterwards, yes. Mm. 
And I think, yeah, the whole our whole friendship started with a broken fan belt. It was broken yeah, fan belt, pretty much. And at that point, I just wanted to. Uh, I mean, I was twenty, I guess, and I just wanted to be part of everything that was going on in its kind of in the an authentic way, not just watch what was happening, but help and be involved. Yes. Even though I was really just there, uh, well, initially just to sort of take pictures and write a bit of a story. So. When I saw something like that happening, it's like, well, I've got nothing. All I can be doing is going to sleep. Well, yeah, let's go drive go. into town. I'll keep you company for sure. And then that hunt finished, and uh, you were kind enough to, I don't know what on earth you were thinking. We said, well, if you're not in any great rush, come and stay with me for a few days. Because <laughs> I, I was on hunting. Mm, we did. I was in the fortunate position where I I didn't, well, my ticket go to go home was at some point you know, a long way from then. Um, and... I uh, I just told my grandparents I'd be back in Joburg at some point. Yeah, you poor thing. Actually, you actually got bitten by a spider. If, I'm, if memory serves me correct. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> so of that, the the great couple of days that I did spend, two of that was actually sick in bed with your mom looking after me. Yes. <laughs> well, you got on and did whatever it was that you were doing. I, in fact, you know, I distinctly remember sitting on. You the first day I got bitten. I think we were sitting waiting for warthogs, and the following morning you went to go and pick up carcasses from the larder somewhere, and I was sitting on a roundabout while you were loading carcasses. And all I wanted to be doing was actually helping, you know, being part of it. And, and I just felt couldn't. so I'd know. It was almost I sat there like I was hungover, and I absolutely wasn't. I was just ill. <laughs> But I got over it, and then we managed to do a little bit of hunting before I left. Yeah. And then I think quite a, a couple of years passed before I managed to make it back, though. Two. Two, two or three, I think, two the years first maybe, time. Yeah. Um, and then I made it back to catch up with you, and then it's been sort of a once a year or every two years. At I've least try and see each other once a year. Yeah. Oh. And for the last, last four years, it's been... It's been alt- uh, alternate. Yes. You in Scotland, me here, and last year, w- which was awesome, was I managed to bring my dad with to hunt. Which yes, was I think brilliant. he also had a very good trip. And yeah. Something that he's always wanted to do is shoot a nice kudu bull, and um, mm. he did, at the end, get a very nice kudu bull. Strange thing with the... It's just made me think of the... When we were hunting kudu last year with dad... Was that two the two years before that we had seen a kudu bull up there in the mountains that had really strange um, shaped horns that were almost coming back and they touching. They were almost like very narrow and they almost touch each, each other. Hmm. So, not 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 a gr- not a great bull, but no, it was but very distinct. Yes, and we wanted to shoot it at that stage because. It's not something you want to keep. Hmm. And it was a bit out of range, so we decided not to take him. Carry on. And <laughs> Carry on. And uh, two years later, I uh, didn't I didn't actually realize it was the same bull until afterwards, but I shot the, my last bull of the, of the trip, and I'm standing there, and you'd caught up, or from... You were hunting with my dad, I think, yes. at the time, and then you came to join us once we had this, this kudu down. And uh, DFN turns to me and says, you know which bull this is? 
And as soon as he said it, I I knew and I looked at it and it absolutely was. It was the same bull that we had seen two years before, except now a little bit bigger. That was a little bit bigger, yeah. and he uh, was just in, within range this time. <laughs> but uh, I was kind of annoyed actually that I hadn't noticed before and clicked that it was because he was so distinct. But anyway, that's what you get for looking at a lot more kudu than I do. <laughs> Oh, well, I suppose you can see the same with your with your DA view on the places on a regular basis. Mm. You do get to identify certain animals. and Especially if you're used to seeing them. Yes. Yeah. Now, we had... Uh, this trip was very short. I gave you absolutely zero notice before I was coming, but I was I needed to come and catch up with you guys, and I needed to smell Africa again because it has been... It had been two years... And we had this, uh, it was a, a special trip for a really unusual reason, because just prior to coming out here, I got a message. Um, oh, we're talking about our guest now. We're talking about our guest, okay. yeah. Um, I got a message, uh, well, my brother and I, I got a message on Instagram from someone who follows podcast and our films and all, you know, all the stuff that we put up online. Um, his name was Nathan. And um, he asked us um, if it would be possible for the knowing that we come to Africa, if it would be possible for us to bring his dad's ashes here. And the background of that story was that um, his father had died two years before, 2015, and he had had his his dad's ashes. But he had always wanted to come and hunt here, and always for some reason felt like he really would have belonged here. And I think a lot of people who love hunting probably have that a little bit of that in them because Africa just there is something about that sort of primitive urge to hunt and Africa that are just connected. They're just one and the same. And um I yeah, was kind of a little taken back because it's not something you get asked every day, but if I could help absolutely I would and Long story short on that is um, his father, Roy, his ashes, ended up coming over with us. Well, coming over with me. And then uh, I flew down to the Eastern Cape. And I didn't actually tell Diafun that we were going to be doing this until uh, I arrived. But I had a kind of a plan of where up in the mountains where we we were going to um, scatter his ashes. Because Nathan had said that he was he didn't think that he was going to be able to take them anytime soon himself. And he really wanted to... Do this and sort of the sort of final piece part of spreading his ashes. So we had this amazing privilege of of being part of this. But for four days, we were hunting with Roy. Yes, and and it was the most surreal experience. It was well, number one, he had to be a good guy if he was a hunter. If he was an ethical hunter, that's why we can almost say we got along with him because. Yes. He was just part of our trip the whole way, and he almost became like a third person. We we kind of spoke to him, not really talked to him, but he was always in the conversation. Yeah, being referenced. Because, yeah. Um, yes, we must remember Roy's with us, and yeah. we've still got to do that. And and he witnessed some Not large to. parts of, of the Eastern Cape, and he saw some pretty amazing things. Yeah, he went through the the big snowstorm that we were talking about earlier. 
Um, I shot a, a nice mountain Reebok. Yes. And uh, he was there for that. Uh, and I mean, the, original, the original plan was to take him to the very top of the mountains there, um, which we actually shot the mountain Reebok on the, the way, way up. Doing it, yeah, yes. that was our intention. And this co- we knew a cold front was coming in, and Diofan was telling me that I need to hurry up and take the pictures and everything that I wanted to on the way up, and I went as fast as was humanly possible, honestly. But as we got to the top There's of the mountain... There's a handful of people that won't agree, because <laughs> luckily those people, and I'm not going to mention names will know what, what I was dealing with. <laughs> because it normally takes quite a bit of time. But anyway, we eventually make it to the very, very top of the mountain there. And no word of a lie, 30 seconds after we make the last turn on the dirt track up there, the, the mist is already just hovering below the road. 30 seconds later, the mist rolls over the top, and we can't see anything. Nothing. Like 30 meters. So we went from what is the most spectacular view off both sides, but especially off the other side, where it just sort of drops off and you just see forever, to being like in a glass of milk. <laughs> yeah. So, which so wasn't we, ideal. Uh, I don't think that would have worked, because there was no view at that stage. <laughs> no. We knew it was nice, but we thought, right, okay, we're going to have to make another plan. So uh, Roy came back down with us. Uh, off the mountain, off the snowstorm the following day. He helped pull out somebody on the road who'd got <laughs> stuck in the snow. Uh, and then we came uh, back to Deerfin's house, um, lower down where the, it was chucking it with rain, but at least it was no snow. And uh, today, actually. Uh, no, not today, yesterday. Yesterday. Yeah, yesterday we went to one of the, the big farms uh, that uh, you hunt on and picked a place with a... Absolutely awesome view. Actually, looking back onto the mountains that we yes. just come from, which are still covered in snow, which is really not something you're going to see every day here. And uh, we did the the final scattering. Said a, a few words for for Nathan that he asked me to say, and that was it. Our very short but very amazing journey with Roy was over. Um, I'm sure you'll be happy with the place, <coughs> isn't it? I think so. Yeah, pretty amazing place. So. So not something that uh, people get to do every day, but massively privileged to be asked. And yeah, it was a pleasure to be kind of you know, part of that. Part of the whole journey, yeah. For the last few days. And that was that was it. And now we did that. And uh, unfortunately, I'm, I'm sitting here uh, with Diofan in his house. And this is my second last day with him. Um, tomorrow we're going to go and do some filming in uh, one of the big uh, nature reserves on on the way back down to the Eastern Cape before I go and catch up with another friend of mine just for well, a single day <laughs> before I have to go home. Um, it's been fantastic, as always. And I am already looking forward to coming back. And if anybody is even in the slightest bit tickled about Africa because of the pictures we put up or because of this conversation, just do it. Yeah, just do it. Because you're not going to... It will never leave you. Yeah, that urge is never going to go away. But you are warned. You're going to want to do it again and again and again. Mm. That is... It's just Africa. Mm. and something I did want to ask you about and discuss, which kind of ties back to what we were talking about earlier, earlier about how hunting has changed over time, 
is something that we've seen um, maybe in the last 10 years here, which has courted, it's probably courted more controversy here than it has abroad, because I don't think it's really been part of the discussion, not to the same extent that we've seen, like, it pains me to mention this bloody name, the Cecil line, you know, that was a big story around the world. But colour variation of game here is something that wasn't even a discussion 20 years ago, but it became a big debate and whether it should be done. What are we talking about with colour variation of game? It's, I suppose the only thing that most people might think about back home is maybe Black Roebuck, but that is a, as far as I understand, no one is really breeding it as such, although they do have them in, in certain places in Europe. But this was a very concerted effort to breed different colours of game here. I think I'm the wrong person to talk to because I'm not the greatest fan of this whole colour variation thing, but I suppose there is a place in the market for it. Um, guys that shot everything might want a different colour of whatever and <coughs> excuse me you can't say it was never there because you couldn't have created the genes it's just we just harnessed it harnessed it yes because there was maybe a lighter or a darker or whatever and they found a couple of those and they kept breeding them um I just I'm it just doesn't look right to me, all these color variations. Because I suppose the thing is that we man has kind of forced that. Yes, they existed, but they would have then sort of petered out and then yes. come back and you would have seen, seen it again a as a throwback, one, a single some, one. Yeah. Somewhere, yes. Um, I, in any case, think it's it was a novelty thing and everybody jumped on this bandwagon and it kind of died out in any case hmm. it didn't actually last really that no, long did it, it why was that was it the was it the was it just the price that people think, were asking uh, for game i think it was a big reason was the price and i think a lot of i think it because it was a controversial thing a lot of people were not interested in shooting these animals because they wanted they wanted to shoot what was naturally there yes. not something that was sort of being bred as a bred, particular yeah. color um because I'm not a fan of it, I don't. I, I never got involved in breeding these color variations. I suppose the question is, why? Which is a very hard question to answer. But why would you, as uh, I'm not talking about you, but why? Why would a hunter want to come and hunt something which has been artificially created? <laughs> I don't know the answer. I don't know the answer. Um, I'm actually. A fan of weird horns, mm, okay, yeah, which is something that is growing skew or something, but it's something that occurred naturally. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually I don't mount all of them, but I do keep a large number of those skulls just as a collection mm-hmm. for myself. So I suppose there is people that like something different, but then it must have occurred. Just naturally, naturally yeah. not bred and forced into... Well, I, su- I suppose what it kind of rolls over and, and ties into is the that classic trophy hunting question, if you want to give it a name, which is people going to hunt something for a reason which is none other than 
I really want to stick a set of horns on my wall, or I want to be able to take a picture against something for no no other reason than that. And I suppose the the color variation was uh, from my mind ties into that because it was well look I can have a picture with something that someone else doesn't have doesn't because have. it's expensive it's not well I mean they became increasingly it became increasingly available because lots and lots of people were breeding them um, but certainly in the early days of color variations there wasn't that many people who would have had the opportunity oh, most to. of it was just kept for breeding yeah basically none of it got shot the first couple of years when mm. it started becoming in the fashion but yes, you mentioned something about the trophy hunting now, and I think trophy hunting is the wrong word. If you if you hunt for the right reasons and you acknowledge the fact that it's all about the whole trip and the whole experience, at the end of the day, you do want to have a mature animal or a very good representative of the species. And I don't know if, maybe that's just me, but does that, in certain, certain, certain circumstances, one inch does make a difference. But in horns on the wall, I don't think that one inch, two inches, as long as it's a mature animal. Because if you, let's say you, a kudu, a water bug, something like that, it might be an inch longer um, two years prior to when you shot it, because the horns hasn't the horns hasn't been worn down. Mm. But does that really matter? Doesn't it? Isn't it better to shoot a mature animal that you can see he's had a good laugh, and then take him when he's not breeding anymore, and he's yeah he's had the opportunity to pass on his genes, pass, pass on those genes, good genes. And in that case, if you're consciously making those decisions and you're having, I mean, it lies on the responsibility of the person coming to hunt, where, not just here, but wherever you're in the world, to actually engage with your professional hunter, whether he's a PH in South Africa or he's a guide in North America, and have those discussions with them and, and learn and understand why you're making the decisions about the animals that you're actually, you know, why why is this the one that I should be shooting? Yeah, well... According to me, you should keep good genetics. Mm -hmm. And with most of our games, because our game doesn't drop its antlers, at a young age you can see this is this animal has got good genetics. Um, so that you can take it take it out at a at a much younger age, and then leave the stuff with a good genetics. And once he's had his opportunity to spread his genes. And is towards the end of his life, then you can take him. Mm -hmm. And whether he's an inch shorter than two years ago, or he's two inches smaller than your friends could do, it doesn't matter. And who cares? D I don't care. No. And you shouldn't care either, because it's supposed to be about the whole experience, yeah. not and about getting the right animal, the right, the right animal. time. Yes. And in that way, I mean, I, I was, I was, I've been thinking about this since we did the podcast with Shane Mahoney, which uh, was a couple of podcasts ago now, where I'd asked him the question: um, 
does the actual personal ethics of an individual hunter matter as long as the right animal is being taken out as part of the management? And he he said, and, and I agree with him wholeheartedly now that I, I'm thinking about it carefully, that yes, and I mean, I always believe this, yes, personal ethics absolutely matter um, if it's tied into sort of uh, a management plan so that you have the personal ethics for why why you're making these decisions and it is the correct animal for everything all the reasons that you've just listed but if that is the case then in a way that trophy if you want to give it that name that animal that you have selected and you've understood because you've cared enough to have that discussion with your professional hunter as to why we're why why are we taking this animal then that is a trophy but it's a trophy of um, making the right choices yes. at the right time, and there is nothing wrong with that. The only thing I don't like about the trophy thing is it sounds like it makes you you got a prize, mm-hmm. okay, in yeah. a race or whatever, and it's not a competition. Mm-hmm. So, so we need to think of another name yeah. for it. We've said that before, and uh, yeah, I've got that's that's just how I feel about it that. It shouldn't be competing for that one more inch. No. It doesn't matter, no. according to me. And I actually hope people start realizing that and just do it for the the greater good of the species and for the the enjoyment of the whole of the experience of the experience. Yes. Mm. You know, I, I do think that people are coming around to that. I, I think that. Yeah, there is a, a portion of the hunting community where I think it will never change where people really don't care. They just want to come, they want to kill something because for whatever reason they want to feel good about themselves, they want to take a picture with something, maybe show their friends and do exactly what you're saying you would rather people didn't do, which is really care about the inches and they want the biggest animal for whatever bragging rights it is that they get off the back of that. But I, th- I think, and I, I hope I'm right in, in saying this, I think there is a bit of a shift. I think people are beginning to th- to realize that th- it needs to be about everything. Yes, and it, undoubtedly. And it, it is, the actual size does not matter. Um, hopefully. I mean, that's that's certainly f- the ethos that I, I share. I share your thinking with on the, the ethos. With the trophy, that. unfortunately, it... Well, fortunately, unfortunately, is the older the animal it gets, the bigger the horns get. Yeah. Now, I don't want to come across that it doesn't matter, and now people start shooting half-size or half-matured animals, hmm. because that's also not what I want to come across as, because then it is, it's fine to shoot a 30-inch kudu bull because... It's about the experience. Mm-hmm. It's making the decision, taking the right animals, which it should be. And we've talked about this quite a bit recently. But if you make, if your decision-making process starts with the welfare of a, of a species and those animals, then you can't really go too far wrong. No, you can't. No. Um, shifting track a little bit. Poaching and Africa as a continent are things which two two things which sadly kind of go hand in hand. Uh, we are sitting here now. It should have been today. 
yes. which was going to be the first um, online Ryan, rhino horn, horn auction of, yeah. of its kind. Uh, as far as we can, we, we, we just had to quickly check this because we I forgot actually that it, it was supposed to have happened today. It was supposed to be done and dusted. And it seems like it's been <clears throat> postponed due to some issue in government and permits. What is the, the sort of... A lot of people will be kind of aware of what's going on here in terms of poaching, especially with regard to ivory and, and rhino horn, mm. which is the sort of the headline poaching that goes on. But what does the landscape look like? What what has happened? I mean, during your lifetime as a professional hunter, you've been hunting for a lot of years. What have you been aware of happening with poaching in general? And then you can maybe go specifically on to rhino and uh, an elephant. Um, well, it is since the 90s. Early nineties, the population, the sorry, the amount of poaching has just increased every year. But over the last two years, it's been. Sl- it's not. We're not busy winning the war. It's just a one of the battles that's won. Um, there is smaller amounts of rhino being poached. We've got a long way to go, but yes, slowly getting there. But. Poaching has always been in Africa and it will always be there. It's an ongoing battle. Um, not only on rhinos and elephant. It's across the border. Across the board. All the game. Where there is poaching. And I understand there is people that hasn't got food and whatever. Um, you can almost turn a blind eye to that. But it's the way these animals get killed in snares and chased with dogs and hacked and it is just not nice the way it gets done. Um, a lot of animals get get wounded and yes and, and left and die pretty horrendous deaths. Yes, that is that is the problem I've got with with all poaching and it's the way. The, the the poaching is done, but nowadays poaching has actually become become a sport, a sport uh, amongst certain communities. Really, where it's like a almost like a betting game with bragging rights, mm. whose dogs is the best and who gets the most animals, and now that is just wrong. End of story. So that's got that's got nothing to do with I'm hungry. No, nothing. Unfortunately, that is something that is... And this is something that's is increasing, thing. is it? It is kind of increasing, but the only advantage of this whole rhino ivory poaching, rhino and ivory poaching, sorry, is um, nature conservation and everybody is fighting poaching. Mm-hmm. So there is more funds available. Everybody's trying harder. And even the sentences is getting harsher, harsher over the last couple of years. because. And that's of irrespective of what you're poaching. It doesn't matter. It's you don't know whether poaching, somebody's poaching, yes. poaching rhino or whether they're poaching something else. Does, so you're saying that because of the increased efforts, because of the focus on those specific species, yes. it's actually it's helped. helped across the board. Yes. Hmm. That's the only good thing that's come out of this whole rhino and... and Ivory. What do you think about rhino horn and rhino horn trade? 
I mean, it's it, as we said. Just said, I just we just said that it was supposed to have happened today, and now it's been postponed again. We have the there is the opportunity here if it goes ahead in the next. It said a day and a half when I just checked now um, that we could have have the first official trade legal trade of of rhino horn. Is that going to help? I mean, it's an impossible question for you to answer. But it's what do you think? Very difficult to say, but I kind of think. If if it was legal and you could cut out the black market area, maybe if there's no market and it's legal to buy it. Okay, let's start from the very beginning. There's actually no point in using rhino horn for medicinal purposes. I'm glad you started there, actually. Um, because there's no difference between... Your fingernails and a rhino one. Yeah. It's exactly the same thing. So I don't think it's got... Well, there's no proven medicinal values in this. Yeah. So th- that is where the big problem comes in, um, is the mindset of the people who uses it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's an education thing. Yes. Yeah. Maybe if you try and sort that out, it could change. But, but that's, a, that's a long-term. But that is a yeah. long-term thing, and it's not going to change overnight. So while that mindset is still there, if it is legal and it's maybe even cheaper to buy this stuff legally, Hmm. you might be able to sort out the poaching slowly. That um, if if you can get legal stuff, why do you want to take the risk of buying illegal stuff? And actually there is a lot available on the market, which, no, sorry, rephrase that can be on the market mm-hmm. because obviously animals die rhinos die of old age but also it can be harvested you can harvest it harvest it and keep if something dies keep it mm. and then put it on the market so i think i've always said yes it could it could help but we just won't really know until we won't know until it's. I mean, it it, it has its opponents, but uh, yeah, my 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 opinion is, and I think uh, certainly when you hear Ivan Ivan Carter speak, mm. we have to do something different because what has been, although you said that it has reduced ever so slightly, it's far from being a resolved issue. No, it's- and by trading it. it there's actually a film coming out called Trophy, which I haven't seen, but I've seen some quotes from there. And I can't remember if it's John Hume himself who's actually running the, well, it's it's his rhino horns uh, from, he has the, I think he still has the largest, largest. density of rhino anywhere in the world. Um, and they have, for anti-poaching measures, been cutting the horns of their rhino off, which doesn't harm them at all. Um, it's like cutting your fingernails. And they have been kept in safes wherever. I don't know where the hell he keeps them. (laughs) Somewhere very safe. Um, But he was saying that there, and I assume this is true, that there has never been, while a species has been farmed, a species has never become extinct. While it has been farmed and had a value. That Which would make true. sense to me. That makes sense to me as well. As. So I, I'll, I'll assume that that's true, and it does make sense. Unfortunately... And it goes back to what you were saying about game and value. Undoubtedly. Hmm. Unfortunately, a rhino without a horn just doesn't look like a rhino anymore. That's and the sad thing, isn't it? I would 
like my children to see one day a rhino with horns. Mm. It's a very good point, that. And it, it's pretty... I see more rhino these days without, without horns. horns than, yes. uh, because the risk is too high. That said, um, I do know that... I can't remember who I was speaking to now. It could have been when I did that little bit of anti-poaching stuff and I was on John Hume's farm a few years ago. Uh, and that was that because a lot of rhino now no longer have their horns, instead of uh, the poachers coming in and knocking out one rhino and getting, I, I'm not entirely sure how many, it's four, four kilos or five kilos or four, five kilos, yeah. uh, of horn, they're going to wipe out a couple because now they only have the little stubby little base. stubs at the bottom. Yeah. Which weighs whatever it is, half a kilogram, a kilogram. It, apparently it is the most valuable part. Yeah, it's the thickest. Because it's the thickest and it's got yes. the nerve endings, which apparently is important for some unknown reason. Um, so in a way, it may have, in some circumstances, perpetuated the, an increase in rhino poaching because they need to kill more to get the same amount yes. of weight. Um, but you know, what do you do? Uh, it, it's a really hard... No, there is no, no definite answers on how to handle this, but as long as we're trying and everybody keeps trying... We might get there. Hopefully, we'll Someday. just have to see. I, I mean, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm in, intrigued to see what happens when this. Hopefully, if this auction does go live, and see the money that's being exchanged and where it's going, uh, and how everything sort of comes off, and if we do see a change in the way the market and the black market is operating off the back of legal rhino horn being traded. Because at the moment, I don't know why any far farm, and I should probably clarify when we use the when we say farm here in South Africa, it's not. It's more like a state at home, yes. because they're huge. They're not like our sort of small small farms, relatively speaking. Why would a farmer want a rhino now? Because it's just cost them a lot of money and a big headache to try and keep them alive because of the poaching. Well, I think it is something, if you can, that is something that you can do for the Rania population. And it's just putting something back in. Hmm. Into yeah, the, no, I understand that. But people have to realize that there is a serious cost now for people who have Rhino. Yes. Because you, there's you've, no hunting and you can't sell them. You've got to hunt. hire people looking after these things. You've got to feed them if it gets dry there's a lot of cost that goes in there but you don't get any return on that mm. so some cases I think it's just a fa mere fact it's basically charity mm. that you s just keep it there to try and save some try of these try and save animals. the species yeah talking about rhino um, and I, we don't need to talk about this specific case because I can't actually remember all the details but you probably recall um, maybe four or five years ago now there was that black rhino that was sold at Dallas Safari Club in Namibia somewhere um, for $350,000. I might get the number wrong exactly. And it was an old black rhino that uh, was beyond breeding age that was actually wounding a lot of other black rhino in, in the farm that it was staying. And there was a big uproar at the time because the, about the idea, how can you go and kill um, an endangered species? 
and people didn't seem to be able to get their head around the idea that it was Corey, Corey Knowlton. Yeah, it was for the greater good. It was Corey Knowlton who ended up buying that at the at the auction, but they couldn't get their head around the idea that yes, this is being hunted, but there's three hundred fifty thousand dollars, and this animal is actually of no use to the longevity of the species. That's actually to the detriment of the species because a bull like that is actually killing other runners, killing young younger bulls coming in. Hmm. Um, if that bull is taken out at the right time, it's one that you're losing. But that runner by itself could kill a couple of other bulls hmm. or kill a female just because he's grumpy. And it's people's inability generally speaking I'm talking to sort of the, the, the general population if you want to phrase it like that the inability to remove emotion from just pure logic of something that could be really good for a species frustrates the hell out of me because that is a great example where there was it was very clear because the rules were set down when that auction took place that that money was going to go into um, the protection and anti-poaching of, of rhino. This wasn't one man somewhere pocketing, pocketing $350,000. No. Uh, it was for the good of the species. And yes, that animal was going to die because someone was going to go and hunt it. But just like you said, by that animal being hunted, it was probably going to save a whole bunch of other things or he was going to have to spend the rest of his life in a little penned camp somewhere and just die of old age yes. and achieve absolutely nothing. Isn't it's a hard one to try hard and explain to people? It's always because there's emotions involved. Um, do you? Does these people know what it looks like when animals is old and they're busy dying? Isn't one good shot taking it out a better way to go? Hmm. I think I think we attach increasingly in modern society. I think we attach human uh, thoughts and sentiments and emotions to animals far too often. And don't get me wrong when I say that that is not out of a lack of respect. At no, all. no, not at all. But what? And it's always just a couple of specific species. Hmm. And the people making the biggest noise has actually got no idea. They they've got misconception of a yippa. It looks this cute, cuddly little thing that's swimming around there in the water that doesn't do any harm. It eats a bit of grass and that's it. It's the most dangerous animal in Africa. It is, yeah. So, if you just know what you're talking about Hmm. and maybe take the emotions out and let common sense prevail and it will make life so much easier for everybody. Tied very much to the trophy hunting debate and often controversy is something which I hope doesn't happen anymore but certainly was happening, particularly in South Africa. I can't remember how many years ago now um, but it still comes up in the media when people are talking about especially big game and especially species like lion is this canned hunting notion 
what was canned hunting and why was it something that was stopped? I mean, you probably had a very different uh, insight into it being here in the country that at one point it was happening than, you know, we, we see in, in the papers and read about overseas. Luckily, I was in the fortunate position of never getting involved in anything like that. But I think where it started was, it was all greed, basically. Um, where you wanted to guarantee this guy his lion. And it wasn't laws and rules. wasn't so specific. So the camps and the areas just became smaller and smaller in which they introduced these animals. And unfortunately, some of those camps was really small where these animals were shot. And I totally disagree with it. It is just wrong. Um, but since certain things has been opened up and people has learnt about all this, the rules has changed and it is being policed and it is. It, it's not supported by any hunting organisation. No, and never not was. At all. And unfortunately, again, like we, I think we started off, there is crooks in every industry in the world, not only hunting. Um, yes, so that was the problem back then. I mean, it was. It might still be happening, but not. It's not supposed to be happening, and not according to the knowledge of our authorities and our hunting associations and all that, because it's just nobody agrees with it. And it was, I mean, at, at the kind of extreme end of it, which is just. It's hard, it's hard to kind of fathom that people would do it, but it wasn't just small camps. It was uh, there was discussions. I don't know how true it was that things would uh, animals would be half tranquilized when they were hunted. Yes, you hear all these stories, and I've over the years we've seen footage and stuff of bad things happening, and that is unfortunately you as a hunter, whoever you are is supposed to have respect for the animals and respect for the industry. You as professional hunter and outfit is supposed to do exactly the same. Because hunters is being watched all the time. And now a certain group of people does things like that and it just puts us in a bad light. Hmm. It doesn't matter what we say how we did, how, uh, somebody hunted a lion and we did it the right way, that question will always be there, how big was the camp? and Was it put in that morning? Yes. Yeah. And, um, sort of bred and captured. Yeah. We, we're not supposed to do stuff like that because it just gives all these anti-hunters more ammunition to fire at us. And, and it's, not a, it's not a true reflection of the majority. No, not at all. I suppose if I was to compare this to back home for people to try and visualize kind of what we're talking about here is the one thing that gets thrown in, in the face of gamekeepers at home is the persecution of raptors, you know, whether it be well, any raptors, eagles, buzzers, yeah. whatever. And does it happen? Yeah, probably. Uh, certainly there has been evidence that would suggest people have shot raptors that they should sure as hell shouldn't be because they're all protected. Yes. But that is not the rule. 
that is the exception. Yeah. There are a small number of people breaking the law, and they are nothing to do with the vast majority of law-abiding and people with good we, ethics. We, they are generalizing now, and we they think all of us are doing stuff like that. Mm. And that is just not true. Mm. And I suppose the only thing that you, can be done is you just have to keep keep pushing on and doing the very best to do things the way that they should be done. Yes, and I think... <clears throat> Which is with the, the, the interest of, of the animals and the longevity of the species. But people also have to hunt, uh, understand that all of this has to come together in a way that is economically viable, that allows you to look after these vast areas and these animals in a world where people are, the populations of people are expanding all the time. That is, yes, we've got to do that because unfortunately the more people there is, the more food we need. And um, we've if you're not, if you haven't got kudus there, you've got to have cattle there because at the end of the day, there's only that much land. We can't make more land. No. And um, we are still putting ba- food back into the food chain for all the people. Yes, but we all should play our part in doing this as ethically and humanely as possible. Mm-hmm. Across South Africa and all the way up through through Africa, there is some fantastic examples of <clears throat> where having hunting in these areas is basically what kind of keeps them alive. It's it's what allows people to be fed. It's what gives people jobs. <clears throat> there's a lot more that goes into it, and there's a lot more supported by it than people could can maybe imagine if they haven't seen it from from the ground up here. Oh. If you, if you really, if you just think about it, it's not only animals and gun dealers that's making a living out of this. Your normal IT guy, he's designing websites for all these people. You've got people just doing your bookings for you. And then you've got all these people, you've got professional hunters, you've got accommodation. A McDonald's on the airport is making money out of this because there's guys coming into the country, they're buying curios, he's got to eat. It is, it's a really, it's a big circle of people that is actually getting jobs out of this. Mm-hmm. And we've, we've countries like, um, Zambia, I remember reading, uh, when Zambia closed their hunting down, which is now open again. Open again now. They did some studies there about um, protein intake of the very rural places. I'm talking those concessions in the middle, arse end of nowhere. And basically, the protein consumption went to nothing. A little bit of fish, and that was about it. But for a while, and then all of the bushmeat poaching ramped up because... People were not being paid because there were no jobs. There was no jobs. And whereas uh, a lot of those places, the the staff who work in all the the sort of concessions and camp would get given the meat as a byproduct of all the hunting. Yes. They now had no money and no meat and no money to go and buy meat that they were no longer being given. 
and not only the staff that the people working there African people are generous people. You would go back home, you've got a, a leg of buffalo. You can't eat that all by yourself. So the whole community is getting some of that. Mm-hmm. And um, there again, um, there was no income. So who's going to look after these things? Nobody's looking after them, so you just poach them. Nobody's making a cent out of the story. That has no value. Tourism dropped. And as soon as they opened up the hunting, the, the tourism increased again. And people were looking after the game again. And by all accounts, I think they're doing all right now, though. Yes. Yeah. Everything, the poaching's reduced. Poaching's reduced. Tourism is up. Everybody's happy. DFM, we could talk about this and tell people a whole heap of very cool stories. And you have about a hundred times more stories than I have to tell but I suppose we're going to have to draw close to this at some point uh, and I can just only promise that when I come back here next time I will do the same again we will sit down and chat we're hiding from the cold actually today because it's bloody freezing uh, hopefully outside hopefully next time we can sit next to a yeah exactly outside. and uh, we can maybe even get uh, you know one or two other people maybe we can pull in some of your P8 friends and yes. I can bring a couple more headsets and we can have a drink a brandy and whiskey around the campfire and have another sort of informal discussion and share stories sounds good it would be good and um, if you're thinking about coming to Africa laugh short follow your dreams do it come and experience it yep comes with a warning you'll be back you'll be back And that's the end of the show. Join us again in two weeks where we don't actually know who the next uh, guest is going to be or guests. Uh, We have recorded the shows. It's just that we don't know which one we're putting out yet. No, we have uh, something to let you into, which is that from well, when this podcast goes out, hopefully there's going to be a discount in our shop for all the T-shirts that we have there mainly because the stock is starting to run low, so we actually don't have all the sizes, but if you have a look uh, in the notes there, you'll see what sizes we have left, and they're going to be reduced down to £10 plus postage. And it's going to make way for some new designs and new products coming in the next month or two. Yep, uh, I think there's about one mug left, so if you want to jump in there, that will be discounted as well. Uh, we're going to have uh, yeah new mug designs. We're going to have, uh, hopefully, thermoses that we're bringing to the store as well because everyone loves a thermos. We like thermoses as well, very handy things. Uh, I think that's it. And we're maybe going to bring out maybe a podcast mug and then... Yeah, podcast mug and then yeah. a, a, a different mug as because well. Because then we can have podcast competitions where people have got to be in like different locations with, with their, their mug. mug or their podcast thermos or something like that. I don't know. But we are going to bring out, uh, we've been actually talking about for about a year now, is um, car stickers or something for the podcast show. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we can do like car competitions if we spot them about mm-hmm. when we're going to the game fairs and stuff like that. And if we see the, the sticker, then we can give that person a prize. Uh, the other thing which we're going to be um, uploading Uh, I would think probably, hopefully within a month of this show going out, um, so a good reason to keep your eye on our website and social media, is free um, desktop backgrounds. Oh yeah, we we put a thing on Facebook or Instagram, I can't even remember, uh, just asking if people would be interested, because we've got loads of people that have gone, oh we love it, or we've had a few people that have asked, oh do you mind if I 
I used the picture as my desktop background. We know that uh, we've uh, one of our listeners in New York. He sent a picture of his workstations a few months back, uh, and uh, it was one of our pictures that we. I think it was a waterfall picture. Uh, so what we're going to do is so that people actually get the high quality version. Where every month or so we're going to put up pictures that maybe yeah. you've never even seen before and you can download the full the full quality yeah, version and you download them straight from uh, straight from, from our website, website. thepacebrothers.com yep. uh, there is um, a new blog post out on the Shane Mahoney podcast which I just put up today um, so go check that out along with all the other good content that's on there yep. don't forget you can find us on the Facebook it's not the Facebook. It's Facebook. It used to be the Facebook when it first came out. Was it? Yeah, yeah. Apparently. Yeah. Well, I've in seen the very I've, early I've days. I've seen the movie the so- social, social media. Network. <laughs> no, social network, and I think it was the Facebook it took in with, and they dropped the the. I think you're right. Um, okay, so anyway, we're on Facebook. We're also on Instagram, Pace underscore Brothers. So if you're on a social media user, find us on one of those and, and go and tag us in something that's interesting. Just. Because we like people seeing do what on you Instagram. guys are doing. Yeah, on, on, Instagram, on Instagram, people yeah. really tag us in a lot of stuff. And we we promise you, even if we don't reply or... We, t- we tend to reply to nearly everything. But even if we don't comment on everything, we do look at everything that people tag us in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sometimes takes us a little bit of time to get around to it, but yeah. we do. And we appreciate it as well. Yeah, we do. Uh, and if you want any more information, go to all the W's, thepacebrothers.com. And that's it for two weeks. Thanks to the Scottish Association for Country Sports for once again supporting this podcast.